We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What is up, Nets fans? Welcome to the Brooklyn Buzz. I'm your host, Nick Faye. With me, as always, Jack Manuel and special guest today, Brian Fonseca of Nets Daily, also co-host of the Ain't Hard to Tell podcast. What is up, fellas? How are we doing? What's going on, guys? I appreciate you having me on. I also appreciate the um, the podcast being plugged right off the bat. I noticed that more and more people are doing that lately when I jump on their podcast, so that's pretty cool. You gotta do it at the top. You gotta get it right so the people remember it. If they don't listen to the rest of the episode, Brian, at least they remember you. They listen to your podcast as well. Right. Hopefully, they follow it. <laughs> <laughs> podcast support is tough out here. We got to make sure we get everybody hooked up. But uh, oh yeah. Brian, hope you had a great Thanksgiving. You know, we're going to get into some net stuff. As always, quick reminder, check out the Brooklyn Buzz, iTunes, Blog Talk Radio, OTGBasketball.com, NetsRepublic.com, Dash Radio, and YouTube. But right off the start, Brian, do you think the Nets have met expectations so far this season at 8-12? and 12? Oh, we're getting right into it, huh? Yes, sir. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, uh, I will say this. Karis LeVert's injury, obviously, you know, dude, that puts a dent in that, right? So you're looking at what could have been as opposed to what is in some ways because he's going to be out for the foreseeable future. I think that they would obviously be a better team if he was healthy. Uh, I'm not sure how much better, probably a couple games since it still hasn't been that long since he's been injured to begin with. But uh, in terms of meeting expectations, I would say to me, even, you know, regardless of the Karis Levert situation, they're not terribly far off from where I thought they would be uh, because I had them being roughly 500 throughout the, entire season and i said if healthy they would finish with 38 wins uh and in my scenario they're getting an eight seed but now with lavert out you're probably looking at more 35 33 maybe yeah i I would probably buy into that as well you know i think 
I forecast for about the 34 wins. I was a little less optimistic. I know Nick was around your range, but with about 38 and that eight seed. I think the carousel bird injury you know, completely changes things. You know, obviously, I think you, you, you put it perfectly, what is and what could be. You mm-hmm. know, with Karis Avert, with the way he was playing, you could say that we were an above 500 team with the sort of amount of talent that we have and the amount of star potential that he was showing. So I think that we're probably about at that range. It's going to be, you know, going forward where we have these sort of tough stretches against some Western Conference teams and on those back-to-backs. You know, a guy like Karis Avert could really help. And, you know, down the stretch and in the clutch, he was, you know, absolutely awesome in, in what he showed. So I think his absence is what really changes things going forward. Yeah, and I pointed that out too when they lost to uh, Minnesota their last game. And late in the late in the game as they were making their comeback, I felt like Karis Levert especially would have been useful down the stretch there yeah. because, you know, you saw Dinwiddie trying to take over, uh, which he has in the past, but then D'Angelo Russell was also struggling. He had one of his worst uh, games of the season offensively. I think he only finished with five points. So you could have used Karis Levert to sort of help facilitate, maybe help get D'Angelo going or maybe help get the ball to Dinwiddie in some different spots and just give Minnesota some different looks. But, you know, obviously they're going to miss them for at least a couple months. Now, talking about Karis, obviously you mentioned some of the closing games. How much do you think they miss him defensively? Obviously he was picking up the best perimeter player, you know, shutting down Devin Booker, Gary Harris Jr. How much do they miss him on that side of the ball with the rest of the team not being able to step up in that area? You know, it's interesting because – we focus so much on the offense and just we as in like people in general just focus yeah. so much on the offense because that's what's easier to tell where the difference is. But Karis LeVert's defensive impact, like I remember Zach Lowe saying, I think it was at the end of last year that Karis LeVert could be an all defensive player in the near future, which I took that as, hey, you know, maybe in a couple of years you start to see that. You started seeing it really this year, the defensive energy and the impact he would have on that. And obviously, you know, it was a smaller sample size. But I feel like in every area where he did take a step forward, he did so defensively as well. That just got kind of overlooked because the offense was just so much better uh, than what we had seen in the previous two seasons. But, yeah, I do think they're missing him on that end also. And you could just see it. Uh, even the, the ways they get scored on and, who, you know, who's picking up the primary ball handler. Like, it, that one injury just changes so much, but especially defensively because, I mean, really look at it. Who is their best perimeter defender now? Is it is it Jared Dudley? Is it yeah. – you know what I mean? And I'm not even I'm not even trying to be funny, but I'm looking right now at the roster. I'm like, I guess it's Joe Harris. I mean, I'm not quite sure. But Levert is a lot better than what they have right now, at least defensively as well. Yeah, I think Joe Harris probably is just due to be strengthened. But general basketball IQ, and but Carlos Levert just has, like you mentioned, Brian, those tools and the, the athletic capabilities to like switch onto so many different guys. He has size about him that is going to make you know the smaller guards you know uh, feel uncomfortable, like he did, like Nick mentioned, with a guy like Devin Booker and a guy like Gary Harris. He just has all these tools and like he can, he's got long arms. He knows how to deflect. He's really good uh, at, at getting in the, into the passing lanes. So I think it definitely changes everything schematically. And I think that's what the Nets have struggled this season on the defensive end and losing your best defender. I mean, you can argue Ronda Hollis Jefferson has an impact there as well. Mm. But I think Jared Allen is our best defender, um, obviously in, in the front court too. But you need yeah, a perimeter presence on the defense because that's generally where you see teams with their best players, unless you're like, Anthony Davis and Joel Embiid, most players are, you know, the wings and, and the ones and the twos. Yeah, I actually failed to mention Rodney Hollis-Jefferson. However, I do 
I don't really know what his impact has been this yeah. season in comparison to the last couple of seasons where I see Jared Dudley starting games. And granted, he's not playing a ton more than Rondé has, but Rondé sort of had the injury. I don't feel like he's quite as sharp. Uh, I know he isn't as sharp, and you guys know from seeing him. So, I mean, I, I'm not really sure what to make of him going forward yet. But, yeah, with Karis LeVert's defensive impact, I mean, in this new NBA, he can guard four positions. And yeah. you're looking at that with guys that are coming up. They're playing Utah coming up uh, and Memphis as well. You know, you're looking at him potentially guarding Joe Ingles, potentially guarding Donovan Mitchell at times. Memphis, you're looking at him guarding Mike Conley at times. You know what I mean? And that just sort of changes everything when you lose your not only your primary offensive source, but your, primarily, uh, your primary defender as well. Yeah, and you mentioned Ronda. He just doesn't look quite as springy this year. The energy just isn't quite there yet. Maybe it's health. But do you think anybody can step up in the Karis LeVert role in terms of defensively? I mean, I <laughs> I would think that it'd be Ronda, but uh, yeah. he's, also, he's also playing a different position, though, right? So they're using him, obviously, more on the inside. And I haven't seen the Nets put him on, say, the other team's primary ball handler. Like, I'm not really so sure because they need him in the post that we're going to see him guard Mike Conley, that we're going to see him guard Donovan Mitchell, you know, coming up in those games, whereas you're probably just going to see Joe Harris, Spencer, D'Angelo, you know what I mean? Guys like that, Alan Crabb. Alan Crabb was actually taking a step defensively. Maybe it's him because Kenny Atkinson has mentioned that Alan Crabb has looked better defensively, has looked better rebounding. And that's something that I've seen. I feel like when he was having his struggles earlier in the year and lately, you know, he's kind of debunked that, but he's not completely out of the woods yet because if he has another six-point game, then people are going to be like, here we go again. But defensively, he has gotten better back to sort of what he was earlier in his Portland days because I remember he did have a bit of a reputation for being pretty good defensively. And then right before the Nets got him, he was, I think, statistically one of the worst defenders in the NBA. And then last year, you know, you saw kind of a little bit of development from that, I guess. But now this year you started to see him play more defensively, which has kind of kept him on the floor along with, you know, his ability to make three-point shots, which he started doing lately. So, Maybe it's Alan Crabb. Um, I'm not sure. As far as in the starting lineup, you would hope that it's D'Angelo. You would hope that it's Joe Harris. But I guess you're going to have to continue to play it out and see. Now, quickly touching on Karras real quick. Without Karras, do you think there's any type of possibility for the playoffs still or no? Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I would love to know how long he's out for. But, well, do you think he'll be back this season for sure, or do you think there's a chance the Nets yeah. are conservative and sit him? Well, I, I do I do know that they're they're very optimistic that he'll be back this season. And they, you know, they do believe that he'll be back this season. Everyone's of the mindset that he'll be back this season. Now, I don't know when. Um, you know, r- reports have suggested that um I think it was a, a M- NYU uh doctor or not doctor, but there's a obviously a fancier medical term that I'm not, I'm just not prepared to really go down that route. But they, they said probably two to three months. And that's generally what I also heard as far as, you know, people that I've spoken to as well is probably two to three months. My guess, my educated guess would probably be the latter, not necessarily two months, just because, you know, the Nets are obviously going to take their time and let's not like, let's not act like Harris LeVert doesn't have a a history of injuries as well. So um, I do think he'll be back this season, 
but you also have to take into account how much later in the season, how different the team could look by that time, and also how are they going to work him back? Because if you remember, D'Angelo was out for two months last year. He had that um, that arthroscopic knee surgery, and they worked him back like over the course of a month until he was back into the starting lineup. When he came back, he was playing like 17 minutes, 14 minutes, 18 minutes, and then he got into the 20s, and he was still coming off the bench in favor of Spencer. And then that sort of changed after the All-Star break, and then they started to try them together in the starting lineup at some point and then that didn't work out so they just put Spencer back on the bench so you know there's no there's no guarantee that if and when Karis LeVert comes back later the season that he's going to be the same either so that's just another thing to think about yeah I think as well we saw Karis last season primarily as sort of a bench guy and he feasted on them so I think he should take confidence from that as well and obviously with the amount of you know uh, upside he's shown already uh, before the injury, you know he's going to have his his way with you know secondary units if that is obviously not the more likely route. And who knows by that stage we could see you know we've sort of touted on the buzz before that Dinwiddie could be in the starting lineup by that stage because D'Angelo looks like he needs another facilitator beside him. And you know does Dinwiddie take that role again because it was obviously you know you reported yourself Brian as well as other guys at Nets Daily that you know Spencer had a tough time in readjusting to that role when D'Angelo did come back. So there's a lot of chemistry, a lot of sort of uh, roster finagling that Sean Marks and Kitty are going to have to do when Karras does come back. But whenever he does come back, he's going to make the Nets a better team because he's shown this season that he has the potential to be our best player, uh, and he adds so much value on both sides of the floor. Right. Yeah. Yeah, hoping we definitely see Karis this year. But talking D'Angelo and Dinwiddie, you know, what, how would you describe their relationship? Hmm, that's an interesting question. Because I, I can't say that I know definitively, you know what I'm saying? Because I'm not hanging out with both of them yeah. necessarily. Yeah. And I do talk to Spencer a bit more, obviously, having, you know, done more stuff with him and things like that. But, you know, from what I understand, they're good. You know what I mean? They're cool. I don't think there's this like necessarily like some sort of, you know, hate between the two or disdain like that. Like they're, you know, working things out, obviously, from a basketball sense. And, you know, we're trying to see where that chemistry is on the court, because you would think that and Spencer's also said this in the past, that you would think that two guys who can shoot, two guys that can handle the ball and do the things that they could do, that they could find that chemistry on the court. But he also said that they just had to practice a lot together last year because kind of as I alluded to earlier, right, with D'Angelo Russell sort of being in the starting lineup and Spencer Dinwiddie with the with the second unit, that's sort of how they operated in practice, obviously, in workouts and scrimmages and things like that. So they didn't get to play together a lot. And then D'Angelo got hurt very early in the year last year. It was like in November or something. Then he was out for a couple months. And then when he was working his way back, Spencer Dinwiddie was with the first unit. D'Angelo was with the second unit. So it's just a matter of, these guys, even though they are teammates and from the outside looking in, some people may find that hard to believe. But, yeah, they haven't really just played together enough to sort of get that chemistry going. Um, I feel like I remember which game it was, probably the one before last, where they both played well, uh, the road win. Uh, Washington. Was it? Yes, yes. Yeah. That, that you kind of saw it work there, right? So that kind yeah. of that kind of put an end to all that, I guess, for that game. But that's something that I've, I've always been intrigued by is I'm sort of like with Spencer, like, why can't this sort of work? You know what I mean? And, you know, it's interesting for a number of reasons. But, you know, that's something to look at going forward, definitely. 
yeah, you want to have the two best players on your team playing, you know, a majority of the time. And in the sort of the clutch stretch, you know, we mentioned and, and you mentioned earlier as well, Brian, the sort of, you know, the the chemistry issue going down the stretch, you know, unless both guys are cooking. And, and there was a game where D'Angelo was cooking, but Spencer sort of tried to win the, the game and sort of went a, a sort of little bit hero ball, which, you know, has worked for him in the past, as we've as we've all said. And we've seen it last season and sometimes this season too. So I think chemistry is, is underrated more than any other sort of uh, elements when it comes to basketball. I think, you know, you can have all the skills in the world and a lot of these guys do, but how it meshes well in team context is going to be, you know, crucial for both their individual success, but I think that they can elevate each other individually too. Yeah, especially when you're looking at a backcourt and what, you know, guys need things created for them and D'Lo and then what he can do that. But staying on that topic, if you had to choose, Brian, which guy is more likely to be with the Nets next season, you know, D'Angelo or uh, Dinwiddie? Ha! (laughs) (laughs) Because obviously when I think about this, I'm like, look, man, I'll say this much. I have no idea as of right now what this team is going to do. Like, I I, I definitively don't know. I could see it going one way or another, but my guess, my guess, this is not just, this is not reporting. I'm just guessing, right? Because Spencer Dinwiddie is going to be eligible for what I would say is, at least in this era of NBA salary caps, is a more team-friendly deal sort of moving forward. So I would see where they would feel inclined to give him that extension, being that you're basically paying a dude under the maximum in that extension, uh, which is going to be December 8th. That's the first day that they could do it. It would be four years, $48 million, right? Spencer is 25 years old. Therefore, you would be getting basically his prime for $12 million a year annually, roughly. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So this is just me talking. This is not the, This is not like, you know, this is just me. This is just how I'm sort of going through the situation. And if I'm weighing that, right, against D'Angelo, who, the way it's looking, He's going to get, I don't know what the number could be right now because so much could happen between now and then. And this is something we overlook with D'Angelo Russell, too. He has to prove that he can get through this season healthy. You know what I mean? This is something that he hasn't been able to do throughout the course of his career uh, other than his first season where he played 80 games. You know, since then, he's had injuries that sort of dinged him up with the Lakers and then with the Nets last year. So he has to prove that he can sort of get through the season healthy, and this is a contract year for him. But I feel like, let's say all things continue or the season ends today, whatever you want, you know, however you want to phrase it, right? He's going to be uh, eligible for, not eligible for, but he's going to probably get a bigger deal, a much bigger deal maybe even, because people are going to see somebody in the league, if not the Nets, somebody's going to see, hey, 22 years old, He's done this for four seasons. And the tricky thing about it is we overlook this with these young one-and-done players is by the time they get to this first contract season or this first year that they're able to get a big contract after their rookie deal is expired, they're still so young. And if you're looking at Spencer Dinwiddie as just entering his prime at 25, D'Angelo Russell is still three years away from that. So somebody is going to come out there. If not the Nets, they're going to have to pay for potential. And that's looking like a four-year deal where when that expires, then he'll be entering his prime. So he's going to get more than what Spencer Dinwiddie's getting. So it's just a matter of, you know, 
Uh, do you love D'Angelo's upside more? Do you love Spencer's sort of maybe if you want to call it a higher floor and at a cheaper price? Like it just depends. It just depends on what you like. Yeah, so many factors to consider. I I, I go down. I, I would personally go down the Spencer route if I was Sean Marks because you know it's a it would be a value contract we know it would be a value contract spencer hasn't had a lot of time in the league because he's been chucked around so many times before he was able to you know start to realize his potential with the nets and like you were saying four years 48 million dollar deal that is bargain basement and if the nets were to sort of want to pivot you know they could you know include a guy like spencer dimity in a trade for like a big fish and D'Angelo Russell, you know, you're paying for potential. Guys like Aaron Gordon, who got four years 84, four years 80. You know, Zach Levine, four years 76. And Miles Turner, I think it was four and 64, something at 472 around that range. Right. You know, that's probably what D'Angelo is going to want to want. Something above the $15 million per annum range. And has he proven that he's worth that so far? Probably not. But yeah, there's still a lot of time to go. And as he said at media day when he was taking over the, tw- the Nets Twitter, that's his goal to play 82 games this season. So if he does do that, then there's every chance he could uh, command a big payday. Yeah, yeah, agree. Agree. And, you know, I, I tend to agree when I say that I, I'd probably go the Spencer route. However, I'm not overlooking that. Look, this is unlikely, but it's possible that they can keep both. Yeah. It is possible. It is financially possible. Now, I'm, they have to prove that, obviously, they can continue to sort of uh, make this make this developments and progress and things like that and obviously coexist on the court. There are a lot of factors into all of this. We're in November right now. We're almost in December, and I can't even begin to think how the team, how differently it could look within the next couple of months. Yeah, and you guys laid it out perfectly. A lot of it goes with money and what D'Angelo is going to do for these next 62 games. Moving on from Spencer and uh, Spencer and D'Lo, which I'm sure we'll talk about a lot this year. Uh, what's Kenny's relationship like with the players? You know, do they really love him or is there some love? Hey, what, how would you describe that? Yeah, no, I genuinely believe that everybody everybody likes one another. Now, I'm not sure, like, who likes who more and that kind of thing, but I don't. I really don't think that this locker room has legitimate drama uh, that the Nets used to have in, say, the Darren Williams, you know, things <laughs> like that. Yeah, yeah, I don't think it's that. I do think that, you know, obviously they want to win games, so sure, losing could be frustrating. Um, I'm, I'm not positive that that's Kenny's fault. I don't think that's Kenny's fault. And you got to remember, uh, Puccio actually pointed this out too, but this is something that we've talked about. Whereas look, it's, it's tough because with Kenny in particular, your first year, you lose Jeremy Lin for a lot of the season. The next year you lose Jeremy Lin for basically the entire season outside of opening night. And then you also lose D'Angelo Russell for that stress we talked about earlier. And now this year, Karis LeVert's down. So you're talking about your lead guard, your lead ball handler, arguably your best player in each season, mm. um, you know, going down. And that's that means that, you know, it, people don't want to do this three years in because they want results now and everything has to be instantaneous and things like that. But look, there's a lot of nuance as far as Kenny Atkinson's run with the Nets so far. And there's a lot of nuance into that record. And I do think that the players know that and they still obviously want to do more. I do think that players like being here. I don't think that's something that people would have said a few years ago. Uh, so I do think the culture, quote unquote, has sort of changed. But obviously, you know, they want to prove that 
they can get wins. I will say that uh, Kenny Atkinson's player development should be highlighted as well because that's how they've been able to get guys like Spencer Dinwiddie and put him in the rotation, even starting sometimes. And now people are talking about he's a six-man-of-the-year candidate. And obviously, I know he's happy here. Joe Harris is happy here. He just got a contract. They got him from nothing back then. So, yeah, I do think that there's a mutual, you know, admiration and respect uh, between the coaching staff and the players. Do you think he deserves all the hate? I know he always posts on Twitter, Brian. It's just like there's always Coach Kenny haters in your mentions. Do you think he <laughs> deserves the criticism that he gets? No, I, I, I don't think that. I mean, look, to a point, I mean, I okay. get But it's like, but a lot of the criticisms are, they're stupid. Irrational. You know what I mean? yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? But I get wanting to play D'Angelo Russell more. I totally get that. I'm actually looking right now at their minutes per game. And Spencer Dinwiddie is averaging 27.8 minutes a game. D'Angelo Russell is averaging 27.7 minutes a game. They're playing roughly the same. But then when you look at the, uh, the rest of their numbers, you know, Spencer Dinwiddie is shooting much better from the field. He's almost 46%. D'Angelo Russell's roughly 41%. Three-point percentage, they're basically both at 36 uh, Spencer's been a lot better from the line. I would say that he's been better in late game situations for the most part outside of that Minnesota game. And, you know, D'Angelo Russell obviously closed out. I forget who it was recently on the road. Um, was it that Washington? Oh, Miami, Miami. Yeah, no, Miami. Miami. Okay, yeah. I'm mixing up all these damn games. Really <laughs> games season, but, yeah, like, you know, I, I get I get that part of it also, but it's like, Look, there were times where fans have said that to me, and I look at the I look at the stat sheet, you know, while I'm at the game, and I feel like D'Angelo Russell has been playing that well. So I look at the sheet to confirm, and then I'm like, he's six for eighteen. Like, yeah, if yeah. I'm playing, if I'm playing a guard and my lead guard is six for eighteen, like I'm good. If I have a backup that's as good as him or playing much much better, I don't need to play him. I don't need to play the other guy that much. You know, I could put yeah. somebody else in there. So it's just, it's just. Yeah, I don't think he I don't think he deserves the level of criticisms that he gets it at. Um, you know, do I think that there are some things he could do better? Sure. But I'm not a head coach and I can't tell you what they are. You know what I mean? Sure. He, that's another thing that we sort of overlook is that regardless of what your criticisms are of him and things of that nature, they know a lot more than we do. <laughs> you know yeah, I mean? They're exactly. with that team. They're with that team every day. They know the players a lot more. So it's like, look, I'm going to defer to him on certain things. And if there are things that look funky, then I'm going to question him about it. Sort of like I did at that last press conference where I asked him, I was like, yo, did you? what did you tell Spencer on that play where he just pulled up in front of Carl Anthony Towns? Yeah. A question that he seemed ready for. Um, so, you know, yeah, like we ask him about it sometimes and things like that. But I think, I think, I think it'll be fine, man. Like, you know, the criticism is the criticism, but I guess that comes with the territory as well, especially when you're in year three of a long rebuild. Yeah. Considering where the Nets were before they got Kenny, I think they, they just need to appreciate him more because, like you said, player development has been huge. Spencer, Joe Harris, Karis LeVert, Jared Allen's taking major strides already. And then you look at it, he's still developing as a coach too. So I don't expect him to be perfect, but the Nets knew what they were getting into when they signed him, and I think he's done a, a really good job, to be honest. Now, looking at the Nets... Wait, wait, let, me, let me just say this one thing too. People forget that in this rebuild, they are ahead of schedule. Well, yeah, even really... with all the things that we're talking about, like Spencer Dinwiddie in a, in a parallel universe, we don't even know if he's still in the NBA because the Bulls just kind of got rid of him. Joe Harris as well. Yeah, Joe Harris as well. And Alan Crabb is probably, you know, doing like 
you know, five points a game in Portland, backing up <laughs> Evan Turner, who's backing up CJ McCollum. Like, I don't know. But, like, people need to understand where they were a couple years ago where they had guys like uh, Shane Larkin, Donald Sloan, and then my first year covering the team, it was like <laughs> Justin Hamilton, who I used to joke, Brittany Griner could beat him one-on-one. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> honestly, like, they've come a long way in the last couple of years. Now it's just going to take more time to get to where you want to go to. So. Exactly. And to touch on D'Angelo stuff you said, I agree. I think with Spencer getting more minutes sometimes, it just makes sense because D'Angelo's just not playing that great. And sometimes he's just not showing the energy too defensively. So right. I would go with Dinwiddie as well in a lot of situations. Yeah. Moving on from, from there, though, real quick. You know, from an, you know, an outsider would be interested in this, somebody like a Nets reporter yourself or a uh, writer or whatnot. What's one thing that's underrated about the Nets organization that someone from the outside wouldn't see? Underrated oh, about the Nets organization? Well, I mean, Jared Dudley talks about the practice facility, and it is pretty dope. Um, I will say that much. And I love that it's – in Brooklyn, at least, like I, I can't imagine, like I, I don't get me wrong, covering the Knicks would be pretty cool, but going to Westchester all the time, man, <laughs> <laughs> like that's probably not something that I would look forward to. But I don't know. I would just say, like, yeah, sort of those things, right? Just how, how, how good of a job the front office has been over the last couple of years in terms of now they're not perfect. Sean Marks is not batting a thousand, but. You look at where they were, where they've come from, and you're, you're talking about fans are now trying to say that, hey, it's possible that they've won this Boston deal. Which is crazy. I don't know if I don't know if that's true at all. I think we still need to wait. It's fun to talk about those things now, but you still have to wait and you know five years or so to see how things play out and see how good Karis Levert is, how good Jared Allen is, how good Jason Tatum is, Colin Sexton, whatever. But the fact that it's even, I guess, remotely a discussion is pretty telling. You know what I mean? And the fact yeah. that their player development has been good, I think, I, I, I think we still need to wait a little while to sort of see like some of these other positives sort of play out. But you know, by a while, I mean, you know, maybe what's it, November now? Probably eight months. I would like to see where we're at eight months after that sort of first wave of free agency you know, those first few weeks are over because I do anticipate that for the first time in a while, you start to look at the Nets and being like, oh, they can get somebody. Now, I'm not saying that Kevin Durant is that somebody, but I do think they can get somebody who can make them a good deal better than they are now. Yeah, we've heard that from Woj saying the Nets are very high on uh, agents list. Same thing with uh, Keith Smith has mentioned it. You know, it's the Nets are actually getting some like love and respect. And that's just a weird feeling for Nets fans that they haven't experienced since, you know, Sean Marks and Kenny came in. Yeah, definitely. And it's like, again, it's sort of with that player development thing, right? I, I always, I mentioned this recently, right? I don't think fans remember just how pissed off some of them were when Karis LeVert got drafted in the first round. I really think people lose sight of that because he was supposed to be a lot. First of all, a lot of people had never heard of him. I had yeah. actually seen him play in college, but he wasn't necessarily on my radar in anything that I did leading up to the draft because he was projected sort of not really in their area. None of us really knew what that level of interest is because that pick sort of snuck up on everybody, especially in that spot. Now, Dexter had reported and called the Isaiah Whitehead selection before anybody else did. That was the only draft pick in, like, the Sean Marks tenure 
that the Nets have nailed. I mean, that not that the Nets have nailed, but that we've sort of nailed before yeah. it even happened. And everything else has just been a surprise. So with that, you know, I still want to see what Zan and Musa could do. I still want to see what Karuks could do. I still want to see what Theo Pinson could do. These guys and Alan Williams are putting up big numbers in the G League. And I think that the Nets, while I don't know how talented they are in comparison to some of the teams that have better players, but they are deep. Like one through 17, they are deep. And they have guys who will be under control next year who should continue to get better. And I think people are sort of sleeping on that because we're not seeing some of those players play right now. But as long as they keep them within the organization, it can be pretty interesting to watch over the next couple of years. Yeah, that's true. Very A lot of the G League guys have been really interesting. Alan Williams, the guy you mentioned, is something to keep an eye on. But talking about on the court a little bit, you know, obviously Nets Twitter, Nets fans in general, there's been question about the four position, Jared Dudley starting, you know, Rodion's not getting minutes, and, you know, Damari and Rondé finally being healthy. What do you think is the solution at that four spot? I thought, you know, it's funny because, like, I remember in the beginning of the season um, when Rondé Hollis-Jefferson was still sort of almost back from that injury, but not quite yet. I remember Kenny saying that he had planned to just put him back into the starting lineup. And, yeah, and I had guessed that Jared Dudley had been doing so so well from an advanced stats standpoint. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a tongue twister there. <laughs> but from, yeah, but from like, you know, analytics and, you know, they're one of the teams that really, really focuses on that stuff. Um, well, that's interesting. I'm getting a phone call here. Uh, I'll get that later. But <laughs> so, Who has phones these days, man? Is that yeah. a landline? Yeah, yeah. It's actually a landline. It's a, it's, oh, one, yeah. it's one of them cordless joints because my, <laughs> my cell phone doesn't have great service in here. I'm just going to go through this while this continues to ring so that I can give my point after it's done. Are we good? All right, cool. <laughs> it's like 2003, right, bro. They're going to call back now. <laughs> it's pretty convenient, though, because the service is good. They might call back because that's actually my brother. Who's downstairs? Why doesn't he come up here? Anyway, um, so, yeah, starting at the four position, you know, I thought we would have seen Rondé Hollis Jefferson already, so kind of curious to me why we haven't even though he's sort of been more productive not from a plus minus standpoint but just from an overall productivity standpoint and it leads me to believe that his future is very much in question because you know he's in a contract year he's one of these other guys who this is a big year for him and we've seen his production dip just because he's not really getting the same amount of minutes Damari Carroll who is somebody I've had to look up and I was like oh yeah that's right he's here too and he was somebody who was starting uh, games at the forward position last year as well. So I'm not really sure. I think at some point we're going to see Karuks. I just don't know to what degree. And I know that they want to use Long Island to sort of develop these guys. But I think relatively soon, I think, again, this is not a report necessarily. This is just me. I would think that we'll start to see Karuks in particular, but maybe some of those other G League guys as well. Yeah, yeah, it would be nice to see Rodion's. Yeah, yeah. Rodion's has been so awesome. Karuk's, every time he gets out on the floor, he just makes things happen. But I remember I did a piece a couple of days ago for OGGBasketball.com. Every game last season, Damari was healthy, he started. And 59 of 68 games, one day uh, was healthy for, he started. So it seems, uh, obviously, I think it was a little while ago, I can't remember who it was on Twitter, did post, like you were sort of saying, Brian, about the advanced stats and plus minus wise, Jared Dudley has added you know, an extreme amount of value. But the I'm not sure if it takes the last two or three games into account because I think he has taken a step back, so to speak. You know, Nick and I spoke about him on the buzz and the amount of minutes he's playing 
in comparison to last season, even the season before, is just astronomical. So I think he would be better served coming off the bench. And, and his greatest value comes not on the court for me. His greatest value is, you know, a, a mentoring sort of role and just being able to, you know, teach guys like Rodion, teach guys like D'Angelo how right. to do the right things, the sort of fundamentals of being an NBA-ready basketball. So I'd love to see, you know, come game 75 that Rodion's quarter is starting because I think he might be our long-term starter unless we were to get like a guy like a Tobias Harris or whatever. Uh, but Rodion's has just been so good and I think he's probably on paper the best fit. It's just that he doesn't seem necessarily ready and I think Long Island is a good spot for him to develop because you know Jeanne's shown awesome things there as has Alan Williams and Theo so uh it's it's a good spot to be in so to speak yeah let me just add this I'm not overlooking that and with Rondé and with Damari Carroll they're both in contract seasons and both are slated to be free agents at the end of the year I feel like there is also something to that with them being on the bench as well although in favor of Jared Dudley is kind of a little odd when you're using that logic but you know, at the same at the same time, it's like I, I think again. I think that we're gonna see we're gonna see a different team, uh, in three months, at least to some degree, but really more so probably in eight months. Yeah, Brian. Right now, what would be personally your ideal starting lineup for the Nets? Uh, you mean this current group? Currently, right now, you know, going to the next game, you know, against Philly tomorrow. Well, let's see. I would resurrect Karis LeVert first of all. <laughs> well, if we could do that, I'd definitely be on board. <laughs> um, you know, I, I wanted to at one point see Russell and Dinwiddie together starting and then sort of have Shabazz take on a bigger role coming off the bench. But I've since mm-hmm. sort of moved off of that just because I see Spencer sort of thriving in that role most nights than he's not. So I would sort of leave that where it is and have D'Angelo Russell starting at the one. And then um, I find it interesting that Crab and Joe Harris are starting together. But I think, you know, Kenny just wants to really get both those guys going at the same time because he knows how much more effective they would be. Uh, For me personally, I would like to see Rondé at the four, uh, Jared Allen obviously at the five, D'Angelo at one. And then from there, I'd probably go... I'd probably go, yeah, I'd, I'd probably stay with Joe Harris and Alan Crabb. Um, but part of me would also perhaps put in Karooks there instead of Rondé and start him at the four just to see what he could do. Because as you guys alluded to, when he steps on the floor, good things have sort of happened, which is why it's curious to me that, yeah, I mean, you want to develop him in the G League where he's going to play more. But part of me is also like, man, just throw him in your rotation in the NBA. Yeah. We see what he can do you know, as, 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 as a rookie on this team who, you know, I, I guess they're playing for wins, yes, but with Karras out, I mean, there's no doubt that you're not as effective and not as competitive. So I would like to see what Karooks could do in this situation as well. So I'm not really opposed to starting him at the four either. What about you, Jack? Yeah, I, I would love to see Rodion's at the four as well. And I think Dinwood, we spoke about, and I know Nick really was a big advocate for Spencer starting. I personally, because I want my prediction of him being six man of the year to come (laughs) true for him to stay in that bench role. But, you know, I I think D'Angelo would work better with another facilitator. And it's why he was playing well alongside a guy like Karis LeVert. It's going to be, there's just so many things to like mix around with. And that's why I think Coach Kenny deserves, it's, it's a tough job like we alluded to. Mm-hmm. And figuring out the right sort of 
cohesion within, you know, on offense and defense, you know, could Joe Harris come off the bench because he was such a productive piece there and he started the season so well and he's obviously had some up and down moments since. But we know in whatever role Joe Harris is going to do, he's going to be great. And I think in terms of Alan Crabb's confidence, you've got to leave him in the starters, uh, I think, going forward. So does he need the ball more plays run for him individually rather than a guy like Joe Harris? It's just there's so many, you know, different things. I'll probably, my favorite lineup would be, you know, D'Angelo, uh, Spencer, uh, Crab, and uh, Rodions and Allen. But I'm more than happy to see Joe Harris in there as well. Yeah, that's your boy. Obviously, you want to see him there. Do you think uh, the starting lineup or the line, what does the starting lineup need the most? Is it a slasher? Is it a defensive presence? What is it, another facilitator? Hmm. That's a good question. I would probably say a defensive stopper. I mean, granted, you could say that about most starting lineups, but, you know, this team, especially with the loss of Karis LeVert, they're sort of losing that, and that's how, you know, Minnesota had a really good start against them. Uh, there have been, like, some other games where I think in Karis LeVert's absence, I forget who else dropped 30-something in the first quarter. I feel like that happened. Maybe I'm mistaken. I'm not sure. I think you're right. I'm not sure the exact date, but it just seems like teams are getting off to a lot hotter start. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's at the very minimum, that's something that Kenny Atkinson's talked about post game. You know, where oh, we came out slow, we did that. And Karis LeVert was obviously big there because there were games where he would have these big first halves, and then you know other guys would pick it up in the second half, and then he'll come in and close, and you were you know getting something there. But then defensively, you know, you were also very much in the game as well. So I feel like you know a defensive presence, but obviously someone who could sort of make plays on offense because, I mean, you can't get somebody, no disrespect, because I really appreciate this player and what he did in the NBA, but you can't get somebody like Tony Allen. and yeah, then especially be, now. Yeah, that's what I mean, like in this current NBA. Like, so I, I'm not, I, you know, I don't, I don't know where you get that at this point. I would like to see, again, I would like to see if the young guys could defend. I mean, having watched, now I covered the ACC tournament last season, and I got to see a good deal of Theo Pinson play high-level college basketball at that point. And, man, I was really impressed at his versatility and being able to play four positions. Granted, it was at the college level, but I saw how North Carolina was using him. So when I saw that the Nets were signing him afterwards, after the draft, I was like, man, that makes perfect sense because, you know, guys like him, they're versatile. You could see what they could do. I think he's somebody who I want to see at the next level as well. We mentioned Karuks, but I want to see Theo Pinson to see how they can use him in that at that at the one, at the two, at the three, maybe even a small ball four. Because we've seen lineups. I remember seeing a lineup. It was like it was like Dinwiddie, Russell, Crab, Allen, and I think Joe Harris was at the four. Yeah. Crab was at the four. Yeah, they used that to close a game not that long ago, actually. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean. So they're just. You know, he said, Kenny Atkinson says that they're just sort of going with the flow, seeing what works and whatnot. And I'm like, yo, if that's small, if that lineup, if that's working at the end of the game, because I feel like we put a lot of emphasis on the starting lineup, but to me, and I, I feel like more people are starting to see this now, especially, but who finishes the game matters so much more. And I feel like more people are starting to see that because D'Angelo Russell, for example, whenever he doesn't finish it, whenever he doesn't finish the game, I know right away. Because <laughs> before, before I could say anything, Twitter lets you know. <laughs> yeah, all I gotta do is look right at my notifications. Notifications are a trap, man. <laughs> look at it, and then they'll tell you right away. So, I mean, yeah, I, I think that I think that's just more important than anything. But to answer your question, I would say, yeah, defensive stopper would probably be more ideal before anything else because you do have the shooters; they just have to make shots. You have a little more size than you did last year with guys like Ed Davis 
and Kenneth Reed, who mysteriously is not playing that much either, but, you know, and Karuks, who mysteriously is not in the NBA either. Oh, he's in the G League, but still, like, you 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 need that defensive presence in the absence of Levert, definitely. Well, you what mentioned Fareed. Actually, sorry to cut you off, Jack. Do you think the reason he's not playing is just schematic fit, or is it just something different that we're not aware of? No, I I, I do think it's fit because I mean, I mean, if you really think about it, since look, Quincy AC was a stretch four here, and he should not be a stretch four, uh, primarily on really any team no, in just, the NBA. Yeah. <laughs> But I'm saying that's not to say that he can't literally stretch the floor and shoot threes, but he's not Anthony Tolliver. You know what I'm saying? Like he's not somebody who's who's primarily that. And they tried to use him as that last year. Uh, I think before that it was um, I don't know. I'm drawing a blank. But Kenneth Reed schematically, he's a six eight center because there's really no such thing as a power forward anymore as as far as the traditional sense is concerned. And at a 6'8 center in Kenny Atkinson's system, it's just tough to find those guys' minutes when you already have Ed Davis, who's bigger, stronger, and a better rebounder. Jared Allen, who's bigger. I don't know if he's stronger than Kenneth Fareed, but he's definitely, you know, your, your cornerstone at that position. Uh, and Rondé Hollis-Jefferson, who is of similar size to Kenneth Fareed, but who could just do more offensively and really more versatile on defense because he's quick enough to guard some of those guards where I'm not sure Kenneth Fareed is. So, yeah, I think it's more of a schematic standpoint. And I think that, you know, Kenneth Fareed, unless he develops a three-pointer, we might see the league just sort of pass him by, you know, because I, I'm not sure what the fit is right now, at least on this team. Maybe he could, maybe he could be sort of that junkyard dog on a different team that sort of needs that role coming off the bench, but with the Nets, with the fit, I'm not really too surprised on, you know, where he is right now in terms of playing time. Yeah, unless injuries were to occur. But, Nick, I'll give you a segue. I think the guys, the Nets could use a guy like Trevion Graham, I think. And he he should be coming back pretty soon, I, I hope, anyway. What is the latest on him, Brian? You know, obviously the Nets are very quiet when it comes to injury. Have you seen him around the practice facility or anything? Believe me, I know. Um, <laughs> yeah, I actually, I actually uh, saw him. Um, when was it? It was, I think, last week. Uh, one before one of the home games, I spoke to him briefly, but and he just said, like, you know, he's hoping to be back soon. That he's starting to feel better. Um, I, from what I understand, I think he'll be back. The, the initial report that Sham said two months, but the Nets didn't really say, you know, they actually shot that down. Uh, from what I know, I think that it'll be roughly that. So we may not see him under that timetable would be for another month. Uh, so I'm not quite sure. Maybe we'll see him in December. I'm not quite sure. But uh, in talking to him, obviously, he wouldn't offer a much. I, I don't really I don't I think they're just literally monitoring it day to day as they say. But you know we have a uh, we have running jokes about their uh, <laughs> so we'll just leave it at that. Yeah, I mean, and hamstrings are obviously you know something that can linger. I wouldn't be surprised we don't see him until uh, twenty nineteen. Now you mentioned Rondé and his contract, you know, expiring this year. Do you think the Nets re-sign him in any uh, scenario, or is he most likely gone? Who is this again? Uh, Rondé, Rondé House Jefferson. Yeah, so you know I've been sort of like playing out this scenario in my head too, and I'm not I'm not quite sure either. Um, because of how his sort of usage rate has died down from last year where he was, I mean, you got to remember at one point he was like the Nets leading scorer, <laughs> averaging like 15 in the game and getting the ball in the post, turning and shooting where he had, hadn't had a jumper this year, uh, before last year, 
Uh, I thought we would see more of that this year starting at the four. I actually thought we would see some level of improvement. But obviously, you know, with Jared Dudley starting and them going that route, that hasn't really materialized. So I could potentially see him staying on the cheap, but I don't know. They've sort of phased him out at the starting lineup in favor of Jared Dudley, and I'm not sort of ignoring that. I feel like going from that to staying on the team seems sort of hard to believe, but I'm not quite sure what his future is. Um, And I'm not really sure what to predict with the team in general, but with Rondé Hollis-Jefferson, I probably – am inclined to say that he won't be back next year, but I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, the Nets offense just doesn't look as it doesn't flow as well when Bonde is out there at the four. You know, even at a small ball five, he can't defend guys as much in the post. He's a bit better at defending sort of the wings and even some of the smaller guys because he is quite quick laterally. Um, so I think unless we were to get him on the cheap and he were to be like a bench guy going forward, that I don't think he fits, you know, the net sort of plans. Whereas I think a guy like Rodion Skouras, who is signed to a four-year, very, very cost-friendly deal, mm-hmm. uh, I think he fits in a lot more perfectly. And would a guy like Rondé, would his ego be able to sort of take being able to be a backup to a guy like Rodion Skouras? I'm not 100% sure, but what other team is going to want to take him and give him some sort of a contract, so to speak, whether it's like a qualifying offer or a, or a short, you know, uh, or a very cheap, you know, cost-friendly couple-year deal, multi-year deal. It's going to be interesting to see how it sort of pans out, but he does a lot of good things. He just doesn't impact the game in a very positive fashion when it comes to what the Nets are trying to do. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that because I could see see I could see where his role would fit on a team that already has a ready-made offense, right? Like yeah. it would be obvious to point out Golden State, for example. But for example, Golden State, right? <laughs> so if yeah. we use if we use them he wouldn't really be asked to do much offensively and could help them out defensively with his versatility. It's like, that's a team he could play center on. You know what I'm saying? Like, not to say that he needs to be a center, but that's a team that where that would work. Memphis, uh, I don't know about this current model. I have to see them a little bit more. But Memphis, when they were that grit and grind style, that would work there. You know what I mean? Like, you just need to find – he just needs to find a fit. And with – you know, other than the star players, with most of the guys in the NBA, what we fail to realize is that fit matters more than anything else for most of these guys. And a lot of guys like Spencer Dinwiddie right now, he's in an ideal situation. Rondé, I don't really think he is right now. So, you know, he needs to sort of find that ideal situation. Maybe it could materialize here. I'm not quite sure, but sort of moving forward, I find it hard to believe that he'll be here, you know, after this season. But again, I don't know that because this team has surprised me before, uh, surprised other people that report the team closely uh, before. So, yeah. Yeah, and then obviously you see the lack of development. His three-point shot obviously has really hurt his chances to resign. Talking about another guy whose contract expiring, Damari Carroll. Do you think the Nets will look to trade him at the deadline or just keep him throughout the contract? I, I yeah, I would think that I would think that it'd be tough to see him last the rest of the year and not get moved just because I feel like well, I mean, unless they're competitive, right? This yeah. all this all is assuming that the bottom sort of falls out or that they're just not as competitive as it would have been with Karis Levert. Now, with Karis Levert here, that sort of changes things because maybe instead of this, what are they, 8 and 12 right now as yep. we're recording this? Yeah, if they're, if, instead of that, maybe they're 10 and 10. And maybe they're around 500 or at 500 the rest of the season, right? So maybe you're, keep, you're keeping some of those guys 
in being competitive and things like that. But in but in terms of let's say after another ten games, because we're twenty games in, let's say after another ten games, they're three and seven. So therefore, they're uh, what is that? Eleven and nineteen. And then it just keeps getting that bad. Then yeah, you have to start selling. And you have to sort of look towards your future. And Damari Carroll is somebody who I'm not saying that you're going to get like a high level first round pick. I don't think that's really realistic, but, and he's actually not as easy to move because he's an expiring contract and somebody else is probably going to want to get rid of an expiring contract to take him on, even as they're being competitive. So I'm not quite sure what the value is there for him in that sense. But yeah, I mean, it, it all depends on how, these next 10 games are actually pretty big now that I'm thinking mm. about it. These next 10 or 20, because these next 10, you're probably looking at, you know, mid-December by the time that run is over and probably 10 more after that, you're looking at early to mid-January. So, and by that point, you're halfway through the season and you're a month away from the trade deadline. So it all really depends on what their win-loss record is because I think that I would feel inclined to keep some of these guys in favor of being competitive if they start winning some games. But again, if they get through one of those lulls and they, they win ten, two of their next 10 and then four of their next 10 after that, and they're just at a run where they're six and 14, I guess that makes them, then yeah, you have to start looking at parting with some of these guys. Yeah, I mean, if we can compare it, you could compare it to maybe a guy like Trevor Buckle last season who was moved around that sort of mark on the expiring contract to Philly and then eventually landed with the Indiana. I think, yeah, it all depends on situation. You know, plenty of guys could use Damari. Zach Lowe has mentioned his name at ad nauseum in, guys, in places like New Orleans and then Houston, guys that could use the wing, who could hit the three. Uh, he's, he's the sort of perfect sort of guy for that sort of mold, and he's an expiring contract. You know, it wouldn't surprise me if Sean Marks were to flip him and get another sort of pick involved because he, we already took him on as a salary dump and got that first rounder as well. So he's already... Rounder. And second rounder, he's already added in a tremendous amount to the organization in terms of what he's brought individually and then what he's brought along with him with those picks. So I think Damari's situation is going to be fascinating because he does have a really good relationship as well with a lot of the guys in the roster, especially D'Angelo Russell too. So it's going to be interesting to see how it all plays out. Yeah, and Coach Kenny too, you know, obviously, you know, coaching him at Atlanta, being that vet to kind of help him set the culture. Like you said, Brian, I think actually the next 10 to 20 games is really, really big for the Nets, and we'll have a better idea where they're at. Talking about trade speculation, there's been a couple of rumors. I wouldn't even call it rumors. I think it's more just like Nets Twitter. They've talked about possibly making a move for Markel Fultz or getting involved in what's going on with Washington and picking up one of those guys that are looking to move. Do you think there's any chance the Nets get in trade talks for either of these teams? Now, this Markel Fultz one, right, that's something I sort of played around with in my head, but I have a hard time. I have a hard time seeing them doing that just because I don't think that you – that's something that I don't think you do straight up. Now, if Philly would want to give up a first-rounder, but then you have to be like, hey, this first-rounder is probably going to be in the 20s. This is really going to be worth it. But then, hey, this is also where we found Karis LeVert and Jared Allen, so we kind of made this work in the past. And then, by the way, we also got two other first-round picks that we could potentially package and move up if we wanted to. So, you know, you sort of play around with those possibilities, and then you get down to, well, Markel Fultz is broken. Do we really want to be – you know, have this guy in our organization where he may seem like more of a liability than an asset. I'm not entirely sure. So with me, I don't know if I see that. Uh, I would be pretty surprised if that actually becomes a thing. I know that it's fun to talk about, but with D'Angelo Russell and Markel Fultz, I mean, that would that would send an interesting message, wouldn't it? 
<laughs> Some people are saying, and this is these are a lot of non-Nets people, and they are they they somehow for some reason have gotten the blue tick. That, uh, someone advocated for I'll, I'll call him uh, Josh Ebley, I think it was, or Justin Rowe, one of those guys went mm-hmm. for a straight up D'Angelo Russell, Markel Fultz trade, and I'm just like, does this person like watch any Brooklyn Nets games at all? It just makes absolutely no freaking sense, and it was just. It got me pretty angry, but I I, <laughs> I I tried not to comment and I did my best. Uh, but that just doesn't make a lot of sense. Whereas both of those guys together, that's tantalizing. You know, when we took on, you know, uh, another Philly guy in Jalil Okafor, there was, you know, that sort of, um, that excitement surrounding it. Obviously, Jalil mm-hmm. had his issues and he did mention those and we wish him well. And Markel has probably similar issues um, if we're talking about sort of, you know, his sort of level of not just physical mentality, but he's also, you know, mental capacity as well. But the Nets are, you know, the the way that they can transform guys, you know, you wouldn't put it past them. But yeah, unless it's for the right deal, like you mentioned, Brian, there's no point in doing it. I think that people are overlooking that contracts have changed a lot over the last few years. What I mean by that is D'Angelo Russell, who was the second overall pick in 2015, is making, I think, roughly $5.5 million or something close to that this year, right? Markel Fultz, this year, this is the second year of his deal, is making $8.3 million, Gross. right? Gross. <laughs> yeah. Next year, next year, because remember, in order to do this deal, you have to be cool with losing a little bit of cap space because Markel Fultz is on your roster. Now, if you think you could turn him to something, sure, it's fun to talk about. Again, none of this is like actually happening as far as I know yet. But it'd be pretty exciting if it was, just from an entertainment standpoint. Anyway, um, then next year, Markel Fultz, you're looking at $9.7 million, roughly $9.8, almost $10 million. Next season, $10 million for Markel Fultz, who you're not even sure if he's going to have a jump shot by the end of this season. And then the year after that, if you want to take that fourth-year team option, that is over $12 million. So these rookies now, at the top of the draft, the money is a little bit different, whereas they're getting way more than mid-level extensions for getting back in the day and things like that. So you're not only eating just sort of like, is he liable? Is, is the shoulder ever going to be fixed? You're also taking in a lot of money that's going to cut into your cap space and limit your chances at going after some of these big guys uh, if you want to get, you know, try to get two max players together or something like that. Yeah, and that's an excellent point, Brian. And the fact is, like, Markel Fultz hasn't really shown enough on the court where you're like, you know, I'm willing to take a chance on this guy. And this isn't even including, you know, his confidence issue. I think there's some concern maybe about his, like, team or whatever, releasing things, his agents and whatnot. And it doesn't seem like a player that the Nets would want to deal with. Yeah, I mean, you know what's interesting is that the, the love affair with him, I've always been intrigued by this because before the draft, I remember a lot of people saying that, oh, first overall pick, definitely, whatever. And a lot of people, I question as to whether they've actually ever seen him play. Not to say that he wasn't good in Washington because his highlights are amazing and things like that. But I just don't know that people really knew that much about Markel Fultz beforehand. That was just something that was interesting to me. And then how they just Philly, saw the numbers. <laughs> yeah, and then how Philly has sort of handled this situation. Uh it's been it's been it's been kind of questionable. But I do think that he's somebody that is sort of trade bait now because, you know, judging from what Wolves was saying on a podcast, it seems like with Philly, they want to win now. And they've made that clear with the acquisition of Jimmy Butler and just how everything is going on in the organization. 
So it's kind of like, look, we want to win now. We don't have time for Markel right now. And this is where people are sort of inserting the nets where it's like, look, if you want to win now, why don't you try to swap him and D'Angelo Russell? Whereas if you're the nets, you're like, uh, we kind of need a little bit more than just Markel Fultz. Yeah, I literally just got a notification from Bleacher Report saying via the Philly Inquirer that they he may not be part of their long-term plans and they want to trade him. So they've clearly been listening. Maybe that's who the phone call was from. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, it's entirely possible. Like, look, that's not something... Look, with, with the Nets, I tend to not rule anything out of play. And obviously, they keep everything very, 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 very close. So when we do get some information then you know thank god <laughs> but you know it is what it is but um you know yeah i think i think i think the markel Fultz thing is something to monitor because i'm just not ruling out anything as a nets reporter because of what i've seen over the last few seasons but that's not something that i'm gonna say hey i expect them to make that deal but i don't think i don't think d'angelo for markel straight up would necessarily get it done that's just my guess yeah, I don't. I don't think it would either. It's not a very good trade for the Nets. Talking about Washington, obviously, all the rumors and whatnot coming out about them. Do you think the Nets could get involved with some type of trade with them? Yeah. So we sort of talked about. I remember me, me and Bob, Bob Windrum, obviously, who runs Nets Daily, were put uh, putting this out. After, right was right as uh, sort of that the blow up of that team or the plans of it anyway was getting announced. That Otto Porter is something that they could revisit now. Obviously, he's not having as good of a season. I question as to whether that's actually him or the team around him and all the catastrophe that's going on in Washington, D.C. right now. But that's something that I would look at and really be curious as to whether or not they want to do that. Now, going back to money, that's going to eat up. You think Markel's bad? That's yeah. going to eat up a lot of. We're talking about something in the net, in the in the neighborhood of twenty million a year for the next multiple seasons. It's like twenty six or something. Yeah, no, more than that. I remember I posted the photo. It was like twenty four, then twenty five, and twenty six, something crazy like that. And a player option where it's it's like Alan Krabs, where it's like obviously he's going to take that. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like he'd be dumb not to, but. Otto Porter is obviously the name because they they put a lot of disincentives, more disincentives in his contract than anybody else's that they've tried to get Tyler Johnson, you know, Alan Crabb, whatever. So they, they did want him, obviously, if they did all that. They wouldn't have tried to get him to sign the offer sheet to begin with. Now, Bradley Beal, because I don't think John was, you know, I don't think that's realistic. I mean, come on. You, you want to contract? About, you want to go back to that money conversation? Oh man, Christ! <laughs> Holy, like yeah. But with Bradley Beal, obviously that's going to require a steeper price. Now, yeah, if they're willing to blow it up, sure. I guess you know I was actually surprised that they wanted to blow up everything as opposed to keeping Bradley Beal and just you know getting new parts around him. But you know, with Bradley Beal, it's going to take more, and I just don't think that the Nets are going to pull off that kind of a deal right now. Uh, maybe if down the line, if in January they were competitive and Karis Levert's coming back, or if he had still been healthy around that time, it looks a little bit different. But these sort of things, they're just very, very hard to predict in November. But the auto porter thing is not something I'm sleeping on, although that contract would scare me a little bit. But the Nets obviously felt strongly about him at one point, and my guess is that in getting him that would probably be your stretch four and that they think he can play as well as he did in Washington before, you know, they signed him to the deal and his production dipped 
Um, again, that's just my guess. Yeah, um, I mean, I think that there's also an element of Sean Marks being weaponizing, I can't remember who was that said this on some podcasts, but weaponizing the CBA and the salary cap and going, okay, well, we're going to, if we can't be, we can't get this guy, we're going to make you pay him, even if you don't necessarily 100% want to, because you're going to be our competitor. And Miami and Washington are two teams who are around that playoff mark. You know, the, the Wizards have more talent on paper. The Heat don't. You know, I think the Nets are as good as the Heat, and they've proven that this season going one and one. So if you're going to go out there and go, okay, well, then we'll make you guys pay him and that'll like eat up all your books going forward. And whereas us right now, with the situation the Nets are in, Miami Heat would trade anything on their roster, as would the Wizards, to be, be even close to the situation and have the flexibility the Nets have. So mm-hmm. I think Sean Marks is doing, looking at sort of both routes in that sort of sense and going, okay, if we can't get him, we're going to make you uh, eat up all your money and have like no flexibility. And I think flexibility is key. I think he's preached that uh, a lot for, for going forward for the Nets. And it's going to be a big, obviously, offseason. And like we were sort of talking about with DeAngelo and Spencer, does he want to change route completely and sort of go for a guy like Hoda Porter, who he's shown interest in, but then not have the flexibility going forward for a guy like, whether it's KD, Kawhi, Tobias, Chris Middleton, or whoever. Um, I think it's going to be uh, certainly like, you know, Brian's mentioned about other topics, one to monitor. Yeah. As you mentioned, you know, Sean Marks has mentioned cat flexibility a lot of times in press conferences. I'm sure Brian could confirm that. So I, I don't think he'll go to Porter route. I wouldn't be surprised, but it would just wouldn't make sense to make that move now. Maybe they strike out in free agency. They can't land anybody. They go for auto Porter. But at this point, I think they keep that flexibility. Brian, before we get you out of here, uh, one last question, you know, a holiday theme one. If the Nets could request one item from Santa Claus, what would it be? Oh, um, RJ Barrett. <laughs> not Zion not Cam see I've been on the RJ Barrett uh, is better than Zion train for a while only because not only because but I just I think he's all around better I think that me having seen him up close obviously helps although I do plan on covering uh, when they play uh, here at Madison Square Garden in the not so distant future that's actually next month uh, hopefully hopefully that will work out but RJ Barrett, I've seen him up close for two years. So let me explain how. He was at Geico Nationals, formerly known as Dick's Nationals, National High School Basketball Showcase uh, Tournament. He played at Montford High School, where D'Angelo Russell used to play, where Ben Simmons used to play uh, together at one point, actually. And RJ Barrett was in that tournament last year in 2017 and again this past year in 2018 and both years that I saw him I felt like he was the best player in the tournament having watched him and I had seen highlights and stuff but having watched him close I was like oh yeah to me this is the first overall pick in 2019 definitely and he was originally 2019 then he reclassified to 2020 so he was a sophomore uh, at the 2017 tournament so this was at the time of sophomore dominating a whole bunch of upperclassmen at the high school level averaging I think 25 and 9 or something like that then he reclassed back up to 2019 or back down to 2019, however you want to phrase that. And this past year when he was a senior, yeah, he was MVP of the tournament. He led Montford to a championship. And to me, he's just the best all-around scorer um, with Zion Williamson. No disrespect, but when I was looking at his high school tapes, I kind of just saw him dunking on little white kids from South Carolina <laughs> over and over and over again. So I was just kind of like, yeah. Uh, athleticism, amazing, but is he more than that? I feel like at Duke so far, he's demonstrated that he is more than that. 
Now, to what degree, I don't know. I still think R.J. Barrett's a better all-around player, and I would take him with the first pick. If you did take Zion, I wouldn't begrudge you. I would just point out that R.J. Barrett's game probably ages better than Zion Williamson's. This has been a debate in the OTG group chat for a while. You've had the RJ fans and the Xeon fans. But, uh, Brian, really appreciate you hopping on, talking Nets with us for over an hour. Tell everyone where they can find you on Twitter and find all your work. I'm sure most of the listeners already know, but just in case. I mean, I would hope so. You you would think you would think you would think that more net fans will cross over to the Ain't Hard to Tell podcast, but since we don't only talk nets, that's probably not the case. <laughs> but we're doing all right. I would say, uh, yeah, if you could just support us, uh, Ain't Hard to Tell podcast. That's A H T T podcast on Twitter, on Instagram. We have a sale going on right now for merchandise on our T Public Backpack Broadcasting Store. We posted about that. And our Patreon page because, uh, well, you know, we ain't rich out here. So, (laughs) you know, we're trying to obviously, you know, uh, do some cool things. So if you guys could help, if listeners could help, that would be appreciative. And then for me, uh, it's just Brian Fonseca NY. Um, I'm sure the spelling and all that stuff will be available um, on Twitter, on Instagram, where you know, obviously, as you mentioned, cover I cover the Nets, but I also cover a bunch of other things like college basketball, sometimes high school sports, and then obviously MMA and boxing. So, yeah. Yeah, Brian's definitely versatile. He's got all the sports covered for you. Brian, again, big thanks. Jack, always a pleasure. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Make sure you check out the show, iTunes, Block Talk Radio, otgbasketball.com, netsrepublic.com, Dash Radio, and YouTube. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash blue wire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.